0: Our first reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's found on page 199 in the New Testament part of the Bible. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well that God will open to us a door for the world that he may declare the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. And our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, page 32 in the Bibles. It's Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, uh, do you please turn with your scriptures, your Bibles, to page 199. It's our reading for today. Colossians chapter 4, it's very good to see you all here, let me pray. Father thank you as we've read for the promise of Christ to be with his people even to the end of the age, we pray that his presence might especially be in our midst, be in our thinking as we hear your word, be in our reading as we read it and reflect upon it. And be in our hearts and our wills as we seek to be strengthened to follow Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In Colossians chapter 4, and it's verse 3, Paul writes of an open door. And in this church family, as we anticipate our annual meeting in a week or so's time, you're aware that this verse reflects something of our desire for this last year. Behold, I set before you an open door. Paul prays in this passage, might he have a door open for him for effective service? Perhaps in life you've had a multiple decision-making process and you're not sure whether to go that way or that way or that way. If the choice is yours, so be it, you get to choose. But Paul is praying that God would choose which door to open and then he wants to go through it. But for our church family, behold, I set before you an open door. Interestingly, this scripture, this passage, comes in a very, very important chapter in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Behold, I set before you an open door. This is what God's calling the church to do. There's a wider picture that heaven is open for all to look and see. Curiously, in Revelation chapter 3, Christ is present but he's behind a closed door. And it's a very famous verse based on many pictures, Jesus, the light of the world, and he's knocking on the door of the church trying to get in. Uh, Tragic and desperately ironic that Christ, who's the Lord of the church, is outside the church wanting to get in. It's a very powerful image, that of the open door, whether you're looking to make a choice for yourself Perhaps even just to test your heart. Is my heart open or is it closed to the things of God? Be that as it may, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, has this fascinating phrase. Paul's asking for a door to be opened to him. It almost comes by way of a footnote or the conclusion of this wonderful letter, Paul writes to the church at Colossae. You can see there in your chapter heading, it's further instructions. He's already been speaking for some three whole chapters. And by way of conclusion, it's almost as if you're sending your child off to school. Don't forget you packed lunch. Here we are. In other words, they've done their homework, they've had their breakfast, all is right at home and with the world, but just don't forget you packed lunch. And it's almost in that sense, by the way, as you go, devote yourselves to prayer. When you think about your speech, let it be seasoned with salt, full of grace, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And by the way, when you're praying for me, pray that God would open a door that I might declare the mysteries of Christ. This footnote, of course, comes at the end of Paul's letter, and in order that we might reflect for Christ's word for us today from that, it's very important that we realise what's gone before. And in this particular passage, it's crucial that, that we get this right. So my first point is this, mountains and molehills. I'm sure I've made many a mountain out of a molehill of a problem. A problem that if I have just chatted with my wife Alison, she'd have sorted it out just like that. And we know people's personalities that seem to be where they're just always making a mountain out of a molehill. Perhaps to underline the contrast a little bit more, the mountain Paul is wanting us to look at. And this is not a problem. It's a vista and a view even of heaven itself. It's not just a mountain that's high. It even goes to heaven itself. It's a view of Christ who is supreme over all. In all of Paul's teachings, when he's speaking to people about life, about what they might do at work, about their home situation, or whatever problem they might have in life, he always seems to say something first. In all his writings, in all his epistles. You could just summarise it and say, Paul always speaks about belief before behaviour. Or you could summarise it and say, Paul's always wanting us to see the bigger picture before he gets involved in the detail of what he is now going to talk about. Or he almost wants to say, look, please make sure you've got this perspective on things before you start to look at some of the problems that you might have in life, mountains and molehills. In Colossians chapter 1, you have the most glorious, highest, most wonderful, vivid picture of Jesus Christ. That if you want to follow him or understand what he wants to do with the church or his place in the world, then you have to climb this mountain. You have to see how amazing and glorious and supreme and preeminent and dominant it is. It's vast beyond imagining. Paul himself is even struggling with language to know how he can paint the picture. That is the perspective for the whole of life. To repeat myself is not just about forgetting your sandwiches. It's about are you dressed? Are you healthy? Have you done your homework? It's about all you are as a human being. And Paul says, please remember Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most important verse is Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Difficult to summarise the indescribable but perhaps this is the best to get a picture of how vast this mountain is. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. It's clearly speaking about Jesus Christ. Even as you cast your eye over the page of the sacred scriptures you'll see how often the word he is mentioned. Paul is referring to him. To he, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body. Verse 18, the church. He's the firstborn from among the dead. In other words, he's been before all things and he will be at the end of all things. Pante is the Greek word which literally means all things. It's not pantheism. God is in the chair and in the pulpit or in the church. The church. It's not that at all. It's that Christ is in a sense there right in the middle of the atoms. He's there before all things and he's there at the end of all things. He's the only one that's risen from the dead, the firstborn from among the dead, the first human being who has died and has come alive forevermore. Let me read verse 17 again. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Perhaps verse 16 as well. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. This pante, this all things, wait for it, includes you and I. It includes those we love and live with, it includes those we work for and those who we ask to work for us. All things are his. All things are made by him. And all things will one day come to him. Do you see how vast this mountain is? I have to say of a curiosity in following the current debate about artificial intelligence... As to where it's all going, who's going to pull the plug out before we all get extinguished by some great computer? How's it all going to go? But you can be sure that this uh, spectacle that's before us of unknown is dwarfed into insignificance of the mountain that is Jesus Christ and his supremacy. He's before all things and in all things. Why do I say that? Well, Paul later on goes to talk about the church. He talks about the world of work. He talks about the home. He talks about our own individual lives and the problems and the possibilities that are there before us. And we will never be able to get these in perspectives unless we understand the mountain that Paul is speaking about. I'm sure I've said before, I often want to put my hand up when you sing that song in his presence all our problems disappear because self-evidently you put your hand up and say well I'm afraid that's just not true my problems are still with me but what you can say in accordance with this teaching is my perspective on my problems might well disappear because Paul says unless you have Christ and see him preeminently as he is all the rest of the word of the word of God that we might want to say I see what they're talking about I understand that won't be received well both at home and at work and all we seek to do as we follow Christ. Mountains and molehills. I know sometimes from first-hand experience that problems at home and problems at work can dominate and seriously stress your mind and your health all we have to realize is that there is someone bigger and better who's behind it all and in charge of it all who humbly asks us to recognize that. Otherwise the mountains that truthfully should be molehills will become too dominant and too much for us. Mountains and molehills the perspective on life we need to have, that Jesus Christ is sovereign and supreme over all. And then secondly, let me look with you at answers and attitudes. I find this interesting in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Notice there that fascinating phrase, so that... You may know how to answer everyone. It is presupposing that someone is talking to you. So you're in conversation with them. You're in relationship with them, shall we say. There is a healthy transaction going on and all of a sudden someone's asking you a question. What do you think about that? Why do you behave like that? What is this about church? What do you think about artificial intelligence? What what do you think about Jesus Christ? There's a question coming so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now you can't just Google it. You certainly can't ring the vicar on his mobile and say, Mark, Mark, what would you say? But there is a condition here. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I think it's as blunt and straightforward as your mood. Because correct me if I'm wrong, and let's think about this for a moment, if you're curmudgeonly, grumpy, bloody-minded and a thoroughly unpleasant person, for a start, no one's going to want to talk with you. Unless you live with them, of course. If you're always argumentative and you're just not nice to be around... I'm not sure, you're going to get many people asking you a question. But notice the sunny side nature of this person's personality that presumably doesn't happen to them once they're born. Presumably it can be made in some way, shape or form. Otherwise Paul wouldn't dare to say, do you know what, take your sandwiches before you, when you go to school and you make sure you do your homework, make sure you're healthy, make sure you're looking okay. These sorts of things can be nurtured into someone's life, provided they've got the perspective that Jesus Christ is Lord and Sovereign of all. It goes like this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. A kind of antiseptic, interesting seasoning in life that you're the sort of person around which Things don't start to get worse when you're around. It maybe is a check and a balance if you're in a tough situation. It's not that you're correcting everyone, although sometimes I have to say I think that's appropriate. But you're seasoning, you're healing, you're making an antiseptic nature to something that otherwise would go off and go bad. And notice this sense in terms of being gracious. To be merciful to someone is the sense in which if you deserve, you know you need to give someone something, well, you don't. You're merciful to them. But if you're gracious to someone, not only don't you reply in kind, but you say something positive in answer to them. This person, let me say to you must be a very attractive interesting person to be around gracious to everyone even though they don't deserve it good goodness me you're behaving like that well you need to be told a thing or two let me just say this person not only just soaks it up they seem to find something positive to say about a situation that ordinarily would go bad Paul is saying, if you've discovered Christ, how vast and amazing he is, don't forget to be gracious. Don't forget to let your conversation be seasoned with salt. An extreme, and to my mind, humorous uh, part of this, and I can't say I would be this person, but I know someone that became a Christian through an interaction they had with someone who was driving, And the occasion was a road accident. And the transaction after the road accident was that this person became a Christian because the person who they'd run into was so caring and understanding about sorting the problem out. I'm not suggesting we should all go out today and play dodgems on the A61 and then start evangelizing people we run into. But I am saying sometimes we are judged by tough situations that we can make better with the seasoning of salt when unkind and unfortunate things happen to us and rather socking it to people or repaying to them in kind which temperamentally of our own nature we're bound to be disposed to do but with Christ we're not only merciful in other words soaking it up but somehow because of the vast nature of his power in the universe he drip-feeds some of that into us we put a smile on our face and were gracious to people this is a footnote this is an afterthought of how church life should be i mean imagine a whole company of people that were like this perhaps even perhaps even the world would get changed that that's the plan <laughs> that that is the plan Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come on heaven. And then when we get there, in heaven. No, the prayer is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come on earth. It's kind of meant to change around us. As God's beautiful people allow some of the beauty of Christ to be extended to other people. Answers and attitudes. When the attitude changes, the atmosphere changes, people are bound to ask the question, why? And it becomes dead easy to say, I'm not normally like this. This is Jesus that made me like this. He's changed me from within. The perspective on life and my problems has completely changed. Can't get my head around it. Certainly don't know about this artificial intelligence. I just pulled the plug out of the wall. But how it is that Christ made the world and made everything about me and knows everything about me and still loves me, that just helps me. That's all I can say. Why don't you try? I'm sorry about the car, by the way. I'm sure we can work this out. Do you get the logic and the drift? That's what Paul is speaking about. Thirdly and finally, prayer and pause. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, Devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well, that God would open for us a door for the word, that we may declare the mystery of Christ. At least three things would cause us to pause here about prayer. Notice how it's characterised, how the ordinary Christian disciple the regular attender weekly at their local church is described not as a thrill seeker not as a pleasure junkie not as a control freak not as a busybody Uh, this particular person is described in their Christianity wholeheartedly as don't forget to eat your sandwiches at break time lad before you go to school don't forget in your Christian life make sure you're known as someone who's devoted to prayer that is just how we should be because these things when the supreme jesus christ floods our personality with his graciousness and his antiseptic qualities of life to stop a world that's going badly wrong doesn't happen automatically we need to kind of get locked in and get devoted to it in prayer The other thing that makes me pause here is this fascinating phrase, okay, I've got that, Paul, I want to try at this, I'll be devoted to pray, but don't forget to be alert with thanksgiving. In other words, when we're praying, there's that sense in which we should be, we should occasionally be grateful, we should be thankful that we're here, that we've got health and strength, that we've got friends, that we've got family, that we've got a roof over over our head and occasionally when you stop and pray and think like that you realise I have to say it's meant a lot to us Uh, uh, my my wife and I with five children, count your blessings name them one by one then you'll know what God has done, for me it was just a mere matter of remembering to take them home after we've been somewhere I need to count them all in get them in the car, otherwise i forget them Count your blessings, name them one by one. You're probably sitting next to someone who cares for you. You're probably not as bad as you would be if you weren't a Christian. That's C.S. Lewis' wonderful take on how do you deal with awkward people who are Christian? They don't seem to be antiseptic in any way. In fact, they've basically gone off. They don't seem to be gracious. They seem to be annoying me every day. C.S. Lewis has got this wonderful take on this interesting personality type. Well, just imagine how bad they'd be if they weren't Christians. I mean, that's right. Do you get the point? There must be something to say thank you to God for. And in your prayers, season it with thanksgiving. The other interesting thing that gives me pause for the life of prayer... Paul says, well pray for us, pray for the Christian church that God would open many doors uh, into which the gospel of the mystery of Christ might be spread. Well, So if we're praying for the mission of the church, if we're praying for the Christian church, if we're praying for the ministers of the church and our own life here, what else is Paul saying we should be praying for? Devote yourself to prayer and pray for us. So once you've ticked off praying for the church, what then should you be praying for? I mean, it's a very good question. I wonder what your reflection might be. I think basically Paul is just saying, do pray for yourself. You need to be devoted about thinking how you are with Christ. What your life of thanksgiving is whether your perspective on some of life's problems. Because I've just talked about life at home. I've just talked about how you deal with life at work. And now I'm thinking about life in the church. And now I'm thinking about how you are in yourself when you're running off to school or you're standing at the bus stop or you're sitting in a car or you're watching your TV. I'm just thinking about you on yourself. And Paul says, just be devoted and committed to prayer. Do remember to say thank you every now and again, to think about the things that you should be grateful for. And then when you've got some spare time, once you've done all that, then pray for Paul that he might declare the mystery of Christ. And so on. Do you get the drift? Mountains and molehills, sometimes we get the perspective wrong. We're struggling how to answer questions that people might ask us. Perhaps we need to have a sunny-side attitude in life open to Christ. And when we're thinking about prayer, do you remember this is not a half-hearted thing, it's something we're devoted to. Do you remember to pray for yourself? I think that's what Paul's on about here. And do remember to pause and to offer prayers of thanksgiving? Why don't we do that even now? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching which we should, could so easily forget, as the letter draws to a close, and we confess to you even now we find some of it difficult to know how to apply, but we pray you'd help us as we point ourselves in the right direction. Thank you that we can name Christ, and we pray that his presence might be in our hearts and lives even now. And for those problems that feel like mountains before us that we can't move or do anything about. We pray, Sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, help us to let go and to enable you, the Lord of all, to be in charge of our lives. Thank you for each other, for calling us to be members one of another. And we commit ourselves even this day to follow you and to seek the blessing of your kingdom upon our world. For Jesus' sake. Amen.